I'm going to go ahead and hit record. All right, welcome everybody. We're so glad that you could be here with us today for our special guest speaker. Um, my name is Christian Lundberg. I'm an assistant professor of social psychology in the psychology department. Happy to be co-hosting this um, as the Department of Psychology with the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. I am going to turn this over to Dr. Crystal Hoyt to introduce our special guest speaker. Um, but I first wanted to tell you the format. So we're going to um, hear from Dr. Sarah Gaither and that will be for about 40 to 45 minutes. And then we will leave time at the end for questions and you will be welcome to unmute yourself and ask the question or raise the blue hand on Zoom or type it into the chat and we will um, help facilitate getting all of those good questions out there. Um, so thank you again for being here and Crystal, take it away. Thank you. So um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Crystal Hoyt. I'm a um, professor in the Jepson School of Leadership Studies and one department in the psychology department and I'm a social psychologist. So it is my distinct pleasure to introduce a friend and fellow social psychologist, Dr. Sarah Gaither. She's coming to us today from Duke University. At Duke, she's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience, and she's the faculty affiliate for the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity and the Center on Health and Society, and also the Population Research Institute. But before she went to Duke, um, she was a, a postdoc at the psychology department and a fellow at the Center for the Study of Race, Politics and Culture at the University of Chicago. And she went to University of Chicago from Tufts University where she earned her master's and PhD in social psychology. And she earned her undergraduate degree in social welfare at UC Berkeley. Her research focuses broadly on how a person's social identities and experiences that kind of across the lifespan motivate how they perceive other social perceptions and behaviors in diverse settings. So she studies how contact with diverse others shape interactions, um, social interactions, how having multiple racial or multiple social identities affects different types of social behavior and our categorizations of others, and what contexts shape development of racial perceptions and biases from childhood throughout through adulthood. And um, growing up as a biracial black white woman has fueled her research path. And she's a leader in this research path. Um, Dr. Gaither is a leader in the field of multiple identity, multiracial um, uh, research. She has over 45 publications her, um, and she has many, many accolades. She's recently was a recipient of APS's Rising Star designation. APS is the Association for Psychological Science. Um, she's a CESP fellow. CESP is a Society for Experimental Social Psychology. She was um, or recently named an SPSP Sage Young Scholar. SPSP is our Society for Personality and Social Psych. That's our big social psych um, kind of organization. She also received SPSI's Michelle Alexander Early Career Award. And SPSI is the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. And her research has been well-funded. Um, many, there's many, many um, uh, grants. She's been funded from everything from the National Science Foundation to the Ford Foundation to the Russell Sage Foundation and more. 
and her work, she goes, she takes her work kind of beyond our, um, the academic journals and her, and her work has got a lot of attention from the New York Times to the New York, New York Magazine, Time Magazine people. You can hear BBC, NPR, turn on the radio. We hear some of Dr. Gaither's work, um, which I just absolutely love. She's an incredible scholar, but I also wanna say she's an incredible teacher. I know that just this month, she was recognized by Duke University as one of the top instructors. And that's during the pandemic, let's be clear. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Gaither. She talks to us today about multiple identities, those multiple sources of threat and belonging. Thank you so much for that overly nice and not justified introduction at all. And thank you all for being here. There's so many of you, I was not expecting all of you to be here. So um, thanks for taking some time out on your St. Patrick's Day. Um, if you have Guinness around, feel free to drink while I go. Um, but I'll go ahead and, and start uh, my talk here. I sort of take a different approach to talks when I speak to large groups like this. I kind of do a rapid fire of lots of different work that I do, which can be overwhelming to some people. Also, I talk really quickly. This is just how I talk. My students uh, hate me for it sometimes, but clearly I still get teaching awards, so it works out okay. Um, but please, if you have clarification questions, I know we're going to try and save questions for the end. Uh, please just feel free to rudely interrupt me, unmute yourself, uh, put it in the chat. I'll try and watch you over here. If I'm looking over here, it's because I'm looking at your beautiful faces on my dual monitor. Um, but yeah, so we'll see how this goes. Um, I cut out a little bit to make sure we have enough time uh, to chat with other questions at the end too. But my work, as you heard, really focuses a lot on different aspects of multiple identities. I started as this biracial scholar and focused a lot on biracial and bicultural experiences, but I piloted some of our newer work um, that we're doing in the lab now where we extend things to gender threat experiences. And also at the very end of my talk today, I'll show you um, some of our current work on campus. We're actually, we're following, thanks COVID to ruining some of our data. Uh, we're following students longitudinally with our new randomized roommate policy to look at how living on campus in these forced cross-group contact experiences can shift student attitudes. Um, but COVID ruined my senior year outcome data. So thank you for that COVID. Um, so anyway, to get started, um, first your little thought exercise of all of you just thinking about what identities are important to you. What identities make you unique from the other people sitting on this call, the other people who are in uh, your environment around you. That could be your gender identity, uh, your race, age, culture. As I mentioned, we'll talk a little bit about roommate identities, at least for freshman year experiences, sexual orientation. These could be your roles, your identities. And for me, what, as an identity scholar, what I think is really problematic within our field is we tend to really focus on in-group versus out-group all the time. So social identity theory, I'm sure, is not new to many of you on this call, and it's an amazing theory in lots of ways. It's guided the majority of our work to date, but it really oversimplifies, I think, how many of us truly identify. Uh, when we only recruit people based on their gender identity, we're overlooking all these other aspects that that person might bring to the table. Um, in fact, there's a psychologist um, in our department at Duke, Greg Salmon is Larkin. He's a cognitive neuroscientist that just had a paper published that shows that we're actually underestimating all the stress and anxiety that our participants are bringing into the studies, even when we're recruiting just a participant based on certain demographics. So my whole goal today is to really get all of you to think about the fact that we all belong to multiple groups. Um, so this term multiplicity of belonging is something that I started pushing a couple of years ago and really making sure that if you are recruiting an underrepresented sample, and even if it's not underrepresented, there are many other components of each person, right, that we bring to the table when we come to our studies, whether it's in person or an online study, which many of us have been forced to do over the past year or so. 
Um, as you heard, I'm biracial, but I'm this weird looking white person. Um, but my dad is my biological father. He is a real black man, as people always ask me. Um, you can see he is not ambiguous in any way, shape or form. Um, but growing up in an interracial household, I grew up in California, uh, made me really hyper aware of race relations and how easily my mom versus my dad was treated in different ways. Um, I was accosted my entire childhood with me not physically matching my father. And so it was really all of these experiences growing up um, that made me hyper aware of wanting to study not only biracial experiences and interracial outcomes, but also just what are the contexts and situations that can shift whether we feel more comfortable versus less comfortable in different types of diverse settings. So definitely a me searcher, even though I know that is something that some of academia frowns upon. I'm here to tell all of you who are me searchers, it's okay. I still got a job. I think I'm going to get tenure a year or so from now. And I say be the me searcher that you are as another uh, PSA announcement for all of you. Um, this is the other reason why I love what I do. I love teaching. I love my lab. Um, so I would be a bad uh, researcher not to show you photos of our amazing undergraduates here at Duke. I have usually around 20 to 25 undergrads, even during the pandemic working in my lab virtually and in person. We go to conferences and Durham Bulls baseball games, and they really are my bloodline in the lab. They collect all of our data and they help keep me current too on what identity issues um, are sort of shaping and forming in different ways in our society and which identity labels are old news as they like to tell me all the time in our lab meetings. Um, so very briefly, the outline for today, I'll show you some of my work, um, even one of my kind of classic studies from grad school, because. Those of you on the call who are grad students, this was really the one study that sort of pushed me in my career, I think, forward and having the kind of motivation and uh, power to sort of think that this is actually an important enough question to pursue. I think that's really important to consider if it's a group that is underrepresented or understudied. Uh, then I'll show you some of our work looking at how malleable some of these identity mindsets may be. And then I'll end my talk today with some of our contextual work showing you regional variation data with kids across the country in addition to some of that roommate data we're doing here on campus. So first, for those of you who aren't as obsessed with studying race and ethnicity as I am, I wanted to briefly show you uh, the census projections for how race and ethnicity is going to be looking across our country from 2010 to 2050. Um, what you'll see here is that yellow bar in the downward direction. Those are just our typical white people in the US. They are expected to be decreasing, but every other racial and ethnic minority group, for me, my good job security is that red bar. The multiracial group is increasing exponentially. This is where our country is going. And yet most of our research is still focusing on white convenience samples. When I think about this, I think about the word diversity and what it means a lot. And many of you in this program here are interested in aspects of diversity and leadership, but our definitions of what diversity even means very much varies. And there was great work um, by Miguel Anzueta at UCLA's business school um, that actually shows that a room becomes more diverse for a white person when one black person enters that space. But when you ask black people when a room becomes more diverse, that room becomes more diverse when more black people enter that space. So totally different definitions. One's an in-group increase, one's one person from the racial out-group. And yet we still have all of these diversity measurements that we claim generalized from population to population. Um, as I mentioned before, our existing identity models really focus on these very distinct in-groups and out-groups, which makes it difficult for people who belong to multiple categories, any dual identities from those who are biracial and bicultural, bisexual, I'd argue transgender and transitioning populations, bilingual populations, 
these models really don't fit for people who are frame switching and code switching between the right entities very often. And this is ironic since all of us here being in the South right now, we've acknowledged the mulatto or the mixed race category since the 1860 census. So this is not a new group. This is not a new issue. And yet we stopped acknowledging them on our census forms again until the year 2000 was the first time in modern US history that multiracial people were able to mark more than one box. So I highlight this to show all of you how incredibly socially constructed many of our social identities are, which leads to the stereotypes and discrimination treatments that we know many underrepresented groups face. So the first question that sort of guided my grad school research, um, I always like to highlight this study just as motivation again to everyone on this call who's earlier on in their research careers. I had read a lot about interracial interactions growing up in this interracial family. I was always interested in, well, we know black and white people don't tend to have the best interactions. They're higher in anxiety. They make less eye contact. Um, but what would happen for a biracial black white person where technically these interactions are both racial in-groups for that person? So we recruited biracial black white um, adults during grad school. I'm gonna show you two video clips very briefly. Um, make sure my sound is optimized. Uh, what you'll see here first is one of these biracial black white participants. They were reminded of their black identity. They're gonna be talking to a black interaction partner across the table from them. I'll show you a contrast video right after this of another biracial participant who instead was reminded of their white identity answering the same exact question, but talking to a, white, a black interaction partner. So what I wanted to see here was if you activated the same racial identity as the person sitting across the table from them, how does that shift their behavior, both verbally and physically? So first take a listen to what we would consider this as a same race type of interaction. So possibly myself, and I'm the type of person where, um, you know, whether or not I did benefit from it, it doesn't affect how I feel, you know, and I don't think it cheapens my, you know, sort of achievements if I, if I um, did benefit from it. Um. So keep him in mind, um, and now I'll show you that contrast clip. Um, I think it's, I think affirmative action has benefited people I know, yes, I think. Um, All right, and here's your awkward participation time. Who did you think was more comfortable and why? What did you see or what did you hear? Um, the first participant just seemed a lot more comfortable because like of the hand motions and they were talking loud and it wasn't like forced almost. Yeah, so maybe they're more physically engaged with their hand gestures, those types of things, maybe more confidence, right, rather than loud, but speaking more confidently, right, um, with how they were talking and what else did people notice? Yeah, I also noticed that the first person was smiling a lot and like seemed like they were having a good time with it. Yeah, they looked much more comfortable making more direct eye contact with that person and contrast this woman who I just showed you, she actually was just the video camera is kind of directly at you. And so you could see her kind of glance at that video camera thinking, oh, goodness, I'm being video recorded right now. I can't believe I'm so awkward, right? This kind of self-awareness. The other thing um, that I wanted some of you to notice was the fact that their language was also changing just from the simple mindset activation. So the first individual, he said, me and other people of color, he was really claiming that as a part of his in-group. Whereas for her, even though she has the same exact racial background and the same ability to claim having been benefited from affirmative action, she said, well, maybe there's people I know 
So again, the simple racial identity mindset switch not only was shifting their physical behavior, as many of you noticed, but also the verbal content of what it is that they're saying. Um, so as a good social psychologist, I wanted to know, was I actually shifting their racial identities during this interaction? So after the Confederates had left these interactions, I asked these biracial participants to tell me how much they identified um, with other biracial individuals, other white individuals, and other black individuals. The light bars here are going to be those who are reminded of their white identity, the darker bars, their black identity. And importantly, what you see here is that we were not undoing how biracial these people identified. I think that is a big caveat to a lot of existing biracial research is these are usually people who are strongly identified with being biracial. Um, but what we do see is that those who are reminded of their white identity identified more with other white people. And you find the opposite for those reminded of their black identity. Um, so here, this is not only a fancy manipulation check as we would call in lots of experimental work, but this was some of the first evidence at the time to show that you can identify with multiple things within the same social domain of race, right? So they're identifying differently with being biracial, white, and black, which is all within the same social category or social identity of racial identification. So this project was really the first thing that made me realize how novel some of these questions were, also how difficult <laughs> recruiting biracial people is, um, and also how messy their data can be too. Um, this has moved on into our lab. Um, this was a project spearheaded by my current postdoc who's on the job marker right now, in case any of you are interested. Um, she and I were really interested in how these identity denial experiences that we know are very common for bicultural and biracial people um, actually impact health outcomes. Um, so we know that when you have a discrimination experience of any kind, your cortisol tends to increase, which is a biomarker of stress. Asian Americans have been studied a lot within this type of paradigm. Um, they're constantly questioned, are you American? Are you from here? Were you born here? And as we know, unfortunately, um, just yesterday, um, six Asian American women were all killed in Georgia because of this increasing of xenophobia, fears due to COVID. And so um, there's lots of hatred toward the Asian American group that has been focused on in this way. Um, but we wanted to know how does the same cortisol increase that we know experiences within the bicultural communities, how does this translate to biracial individuals? Um, so I'm gonna show you a short video clip here, one of our biracial participants. Um, he did not know it was because he was biracial that he was recruited for this study. This is about 45 minutes into the study. He thought it was only about health research, which is why he's given us a few saliva samples at this point. You'll see a white experimenter come in and he's actually going to question his white racial identity. So watch how he responds. Hi. Hey. Hey. Um, based on the survey you completed before coming in, you actually have to be white for this. What? You have, you have to be white for this study based on the survey you completed before coming in. I am white. Okay. I mean, like my mom's Cuban, but like she's white. Yeah. So I saw some of you chuckling and laughing watching this. I mean, it's funny to watch it to a certain extent, but you could see he held out his arm as sort of this confirmation of, well, yeah, like I, I realize they look white, sort of giving the experimenter an excuse. But then he said, my mom's Cuban, but she's white. And so he had one white parent, one Latino parent. And this is a really good example of how our biracial sample responded when our experimenters came in to say they needed to be white in the study. Um, in order to participate. Importantly, we always let them continue the study. We still paid them at the end, of course, all of those things. What we end up finding is both bicultural Asian Americans in this study and our biracial sample showed similar increases in cortisol 
but our biracial sample actually recovered faster than our Asian American sample. And at first glance, that might seem like a good thing that they're recovering faster. Um, they're coming back down to those baseline levels. But really what we think is happening is that they've actually had so much identity questioning across their lives that their body has created their own natural coping mechanisms to come back down to baseline levels faster. Um, so this was one of the first health studies to ever recruit and target a biracial sample to sort of show how much we don't know about biracial health outcomes, education outcomes, et cetera. Um, another way we've extended this recently, my, one of my grad students, Brenda Straka, um, recently had a few papers. We just had another one accepted as looking at multiracial Native American students. I'm happy to talk about if anyone has interest in that. Um, but we had access to this alcohol EDU survey, um, which has data from 400,000 plus first year undergraduates across the entire United States. Um, you can see here the racial backgrounds um, of the sample. This is definitely the largest multiracial sample I think I'll ever have access to. Um, but we were interested in what are the social motivations that college students are using as it relates to their levels of belonging on campus that actually cause them to drink more often, lead to higher rates of blackout rates, et cetera. What we ended up finding, um, was there a question? Maybe not, okay. Um, uh, what we ended up finding was uh, that white students tend to endorse these social belonging, mainly frat parties as I was talking about earlier, game days, they really just wanna be in that social circuit of things. Um, mm -hmm. And then our monoracial minority students um, actually endorse more abstaining motivations. Um, let me try and mute. Sorry. Oh, there we go, perfect. Um, and so you find these very different outcomes and motivations for drinking for both white and monoracial minority students. However, the other groups of students that fell literally between these motivations was that multiracial sample, who you find often the majority of the sample did identify as part white. Um, they literally sometimes show within their data the same social belonging motivations to want to fit in with white culture on campus. But they also, because of their minority heritages and backgrounds, are showing that same conflict or cognitive dissonance um, that we see with our monoracial minority samples. Um, Asian students also fell within this between group sample, which I think is a really important consideration for us all as members of the academy. They are a racial or ethnic minority group nationally, but they tend to be overrepresented on college campuses. So they really do struggle with these model modern minority kind of um, identity issues. And so that's why I think we end up having these two different student populations who fall kind of nicely and sadly between our white majority students um, and our monoracial minority students. There's other ways you can think about how belonging on campus can actually motivate other types of health related consequences. But we're all identity shifting all the time. My little puppy, uh, Archie is barking, so sorry about that. Um, and so some of the other work I wanted to highlight today was this malleability of our identities. Since I would argue none of us feel the same way every single day. And COVID in particular has shifted um, a lot of the own data that our lab's been recruiting, um, which has made uh, data replication issues a big problem for us. Um, one thing that I've been really interested in is how people see multiracial individuals. Um, so we do a lot of face categorization work in our lab. And there's these two terms that tend to get used in the field quite often. The first is what most of you have probably heard more often known as hypodescent. This is that one drop rule of categorization. This was created by white society during slavery here in the United States, that if you look like one drop, not white, that automatically moves you into that minority or the black category uh, historically. 
Um, the other term, which I actually think is a much better term to be using, is the in-group over-exclusion effect. And this is actually used much more often within European findings um, because there's so many different cultural groups and cultural mixing there. There, in contrast, if you saw someone who was maybe racially ambiguous, you wouldn't necessarily think that they're just Black automatically. You would think that they're whatever your dominant outgroup may be. So that dominant outgroup could be Middle Eastern. It could be white if you are a racial minority member. Um, so I actually think that the in-group over-exclusion effect was a much nicer, more universally inclusive uh, definition for how it is we deal with racial ambiguity in particular. So we did a meta-analysis to look at how strong are these hypodescent findings in the first place. Um, this was 107 studies from 55 papers um, up through 2018. Uh, the majority of the samples were either undergrad or mechanical Turk, uh, very Western biased in this sample as well. 46% of these papers had white only samples and 40% just collapsed across race and actually didn't even analyze for racial minority group differences. Um, the other main results I wanted to highlight for all of you today is that when you're looking at hypodescent findings or this likelihood that you're gonna categorize a black white face more often as black, we really only see this with white participants. Once you start collapsing across rates, those effect sizes drop dramatically and only 15% of these papers published actually use participant race as a factor. And yet this is a huge racialized phenomenon in our field of how it is we claim we see multiracial and racially ambiguous individuals. The other contingencies that we found in this meta-analysis is that this hypodescent outcome, if you wanna call that a real effect, is really contingent on male stimuli when it's a dichotomous forced choice task. So just having white and black as options, for example, the second there's a third choice, hypodescent options fall drastically. And the majority of this work has only focused on biracial black-white stimuli. So if you're any other type of multiracial person, I would argue we actually know nothing about you. And all of this really um, connects to my desire to wanna to be getting these types of conversations out into the mainstream media. And so this was a Vox piece that I wrote uh, just a few days ago after Oprah's interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry that I wanted to highlight that brings up these same issues of colorism. Um, that we know is guiding things like hypodescent, particularly for white or high status individuals. If you're not as obsessed with Meghan Markle as I am, basically she came out in this interview and told Oprah that the royal family was very concerned about what color skin tone her baby Archie, her first baby, uh, was going to have. So this concept of colorism and this one drop rule of bias that we see from white individuals creates a threat because they're worried that it's going to take away their power and status quo. So this relates to one of the other studies I wanted to highlight for all of you today, where we know that if you threaten a person's social status, that also can shift how they perceive the world around them, much like we saw from the royal family um, toward Meghan Markle and her, at that point, not even born baby. So one way you can really make white people feel uncomfortable is by reminding them of their white privilege. Even if they're not privileged at all, all you really have to do is have them write for a minute or so about how everything in their life has been easy because they're white. Um, I warn you all, if you do this manipulation, it's not mine, it's from Branscombe and colleagues. Uh, I was almost kicked off Mechanical Turk for running this study because so many white participants reported me as being racist and horrible and making them feel so badly. So just be prepared for that type of response. Um, but what we wanted to see here was how does threatening someone's high status white identity shift how they see those exact same racially ambiguous faces. So we had a third of our participants in this threat condition where they reflected on their privilege. 
Um, another third was in this threat condition, but I wanted to see, could I undo that threat? So we had those participants after writing about their privilege, complete a self-affirmation task. Uh, so here they wrote about, you know, the six or seven things that are really important to them and reflected by whatever they listed as number one for a little bit to see how malleable this hypodescent finding might actually be. Our last condition was a control condition. So here participants just wrote about their average day. And then they saw 20 of these very perfectly controlled uh, biracial, racially ambiguous black white stimuli. What you'll see here is the percentage of those spaces that participants categorized as black. And these are our three conditions I just walked you through. And you see here that only when white participants are under threat, only when I remind them of their privileged racial identity, do you see this increase in hypodescent or one drop rule categorization? When you undo that threat, they actually look exactly the same as our control conditions. So this is not to say that white people are just walking around the world using hypodescent all the time. There are specific contexts and situations that cause you to see these types of faces more colored versus less colored. I think this is particularly why we see an increase in police brutality between white and black individuals in our society. Threat is very high in those contexts that causes you to then be applying those stereotypes, those heuristics more easily when under threat. Another way we've been extending this in the lab uh, more recently was to actually look to see how threat and other types of identities, does it function similarly or not? So this is work that my other grad student, Adam Stanilan has spearheaded um, the last few years and he's following up this within election context right now on what types of masculinity identity situations actually predict voting for Biden versus Trump, which I'm happy to talk about as well. But in this study, what we wanted to see was if we gave men negative masculinity feedback, um, how does that actually predict their aggressive tendencies? Um, society really likes to say that men are always aggressive. We know that that's not true because we know the majority of men do not go around punching and kicking people, but there are definitely some that tend to be more likely than others. Um, most work to date has argued that's linked to testosterone, these kinds of biological models, but Adam was really convinced that there was something linked to gender pressure experiences that men face growing up. So what we did here was we borrowed this um, amazingly mean paradigm and everyone took a very uh, gendered quiz. These are some of the examples of the male questions here. The female version was just as sexist, you know, what brand of bag or purse is this? things like that. Didn't matter how you actually answered these. Everyone was randomly assigned to get fake scores at the end of this quiz. This is an example of how the men um, responses could seem. And so here, what you'll see is that men were either told you're just as manly as the average man, in which case then the arrow would be at the top of that screen, or you're way less manly than the average man in society. And so then your score is actually closer to the pink bar there. Uh, fun fact, this manipulation did not work online until we added a graph. So the graph is clearly what makes it very threatening for our participants, for anyone who wants to be replicating this going forward. After they got this masculinity threat experience, we then wanted to measure aggression. Obviously, we can't have people punch each other. That's not IRB friendly. So we had them do a word completion task here, where we counted up how many words these participants completed in aggressive or non-aggressive formats. So for example, this last one here, neutral, um, the neutral condition gum could be completed as gun, right? And so you end up counting up how many of these words are aggressive filled versus non-aggressive filled. What we ended up finding uh, was that not all men, of course, are responding aggressively on this task. That even if I tell them they're not as manly as the average man, 
that's not really what is predictive of this aggressive tendency or this aggressive cognition. What it is, is it's moderated very uniquely by the amount of gender pressure these men have self-reported experiencing not only as kids growing up, but also in their current context um, and their current environments. And so again, men who have this more fragile masculinity kind of issues that they're struggling with, those are the individuals that when under threat, we tend to see this increase in aggression. So for the last part of this um, talk, I'll just briefly highlight some of our context and threat and interactions work we've been doing, um, just because I love studying lots of different things. Um, and so the first study I wanted to highlight as it relates to our current governmental shift was actually a short study we ran where we realized that the entire ash conformity line studies, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, was really only done with a bunch of white men and white groups. And so I wanted to know how does this uh, context actually shift conformity when racial diversity is taken into account within a group setting. So here we had white participants either in an all white group with a bunch of white Confederates from my lab or a racially diverse group, which was a black South Asian and an East Asian Confederate in my lab. And they actually looked at resumes of who was, who should be admitted to college. One of those resumes was very obvious on who should be admitted. But of course, just like in the ASH study, all of our Confederates said they should admit the horrible applicant to college. What we ended up finding here was that when our white participants were in an all white group, we actually replicated the ASH conformity findings almost identically. So about 33% of the time, our white participants were admitting someone to college who really should not be in college. But when racial diversity was in that group, you actually found that they were 35% more likely or less likely to actually conform to that decision. And it wasn't because of stereotypes. It was because as a white person in an all white homogeneous group, you're much more willing to doubt your own personal beliefs in that context and shift over to what the group is saying. Um, so I think this is why, you know, no offense to anyone who maybe are Trump supporters on this call, why we made so many bad decisions the last four years is because we just didn't have enough diversity within our governmental branches in order to have enough discussion um, about the different options apparent um, within any given context. The other way we've been looking at this um, is some of the developmental work that I also do. Um, so we have a NSF collaborative grant um, with these individuals you see on the screen here, Christina Olson, who's now at Princeton University, Mayling Halim, who's at CSU Long Beach, Kristen Pocker, who's at the University of Hawaii, and Yara Dunham, who's at Yale. We've been actually collecting this data for years. COVID ended it a little early um, than we wanted, but we have 14 pre-registrations. And the whole point of this grant is to actually see how the region of where these kids live across white, Black, Asian, and Latinx backgrounds how do all of those things shift how universal or not universal different gender biases are and different racial biases are? We have lots of different tasks we've been running with these kids. So we're in the process of um, analyzing this data right now, seeding distance tasks, um, as you see here in these images, to see how comfortable kids um, feel like they should be sitting closer or not as close to kids from different racial and gender backgrounds, standard face memory tasks. But the data I wanted to briefly show you today is just from partway through our data collection. Um, so it's only represented about half of our sample. What you see here is a marginal in-group bias effect for a minimal group task. So this is not looking at race and gender. This is just looking at the orange group and the green group, this classic minimal group paradigm that psychology has been obsessed with. We are showing that this is replicating across all of our regions and all of our racial and ethnic groups when you collapse across those details. 
However, when you break these down by racial group, you end up finding that this effect may actually be larger for white and Asian children, who we know are those higher status groups in our society. And so if these effects hold, and we actually find that the minimal group paradigm doesn't actually apply as universally as we think to minority groups, this would be a huge change for the field. And another example showing that if we don't have diverse enough samples, we really don't know how generalizable any of our results may be. The last part here is um, just briefly some of the college data we've been looking at um, as another contextual component that I think is really understudied, particularly because all of us are on college campuses and there's tons of data sitting in your administrative offices that I encourage you all to get advantage and use. Um, but what we know from the field is that cross-race roommates tend to not have very good outcomes in college. Um, on average, they spend less time together. There's some work to show that at least based on self-report, there's decreased intergroup anxiety as well, um, which is a good thing. I did work in grad school, which was the first behavioral study to look at if you were a white student assigned to live with anyone but another white student, that experience showed transfer effects to the end of your freshman year. And that when I invited you to the lab to talk to a black student you had never met before, that interaction went way better. More eye contact, you felt more comfortable. And importantly, that black student also felt much better in that interaction. I think a lot of these types of studies focus a lot on white students and their outcomes. And we really overlooked the impact that these cross-race roommate assignments may actually have on students of color. So some of you may know that Duke uh, a couple of years ago switched their entire uh, freshman roommate policy to be random assignment. Um, so this is some headlines from NPR. Um, here's another one saying that Duke is just doing this for diversity's sake. But what I wanted to show you was actually the student perspective. So this is our student newspaper at Duke. Um, the upperclassmen were livid when the university announced that all freshmen are going to have their autonomy taken away. Um, here's a quote that I'll highlight from this article here. Um, this student writer wrote, I won't feel sorry for the housing and residence life office when it imposes its own self-inflicted wounds. Um, they really thought it was not okay. Uh, to give you some context at Duke, we actually have a three-year housing requirement. So this would only be randomized roommates for your first year. After your first year, students can choose whoever they want to live with at that point. This is just for year one. And it also excludes um, most of our student athletes because they're very special and get special treatment for whatever reason too. But more on that later if you're interested. Um, so what I was given the opportunity because Duke knew that I had done this work back in grad school, they said, hey, Sarah, do you want to try and follow these two student classes? Because we're about to launch this roommate policy. And as a poor social science researcher, you always say yes to free data opportunities. So just remember that going forward. Um, so we've been following these two different classes. Uh, the senior class of this year, where students still had a choice if they wanted to choose their roommate, but some of them were randomly assigned, versus the class of 2022, where all of the freshmen were randomly assigned. Um, so we've been following these students for a couple of years. Again, COVID has messed up our social interaction data longitudinally. Um, but working with different offices on campus, I just really want to highlight that again, that there's so much data sitting around on self-reported interaction students are having, um, STEM experiences in STEM classrooms. Um, and this is literally sitting there for the university to use. And if you have time to go through the IRB hurdles like I did, it did take a couple of months, I'm not gonna lie. You have tons of data where you could look at real world outcomes for how diversity interactions on campus can actually shift different student experiences. Um, here's one example of the data that we're hoping to do um, once these students all graduate. This is from a cohort of students who graduated in 2017. 
These are students who self-reported in their senior exit survey um, how many cross-race interactions they actually had on campus. Uh, so red would be students who actually have a lot of these interactions in blue, they self-report not having very many of these interactions. And then what you'll see on the other axis is students self-reported skill levels on how creative they think they are, uh, how well they can work in teams. And this graph I did not make, the university made, but really it's pretty easy to tell that that red bar is at the top of every single one of these categories. And that across the students four years at Duke, they're seeing an increase in their cross-race interactions on campus. And that increase is very much related to those students also feeling like they're more creative, more globally aware, more morally conscious. So you find these really strong diversity benefits. And this is the exact same type of data we're hoping to model with these two cohorts that we've been following. Some brief results we have already um, that we've been looking at just from their freshman year experiences. First, without a randomized roommate policy, students are much more likely to live with someone who's exactly like themselves. We are a private school, right? And so many people actually end up choosing students from their same hometown even or their same high school. When you have a randomized roommate policy, students are significantly more likely to have a roommate who's either a different race, different sexual orientation, or different religious backgrounds. We're looking at all three of these different outgroup experiences in this data. And having this kind of forced outgroup contact leads to more honest and easier discussions about diversity, more flexible perceptions. We're actually seeing reduced essentialism for those of you who have been measuring essentialism in your own work, which I think is really exciting. But my favorite outcome is their social networks are becoming more diverse. And this is for all students, regardless of their racial or ethnic background. And importantly, we're not seeing any increases in roommates breaking up, requests for roommate transfers. So again, the students, the upperclassmen were so upset about this policy, but we're really not finding any differences in happiness between these two cohorts either. So with that, I'll leave you with this quote from William James in 1890, since he knew back in the day that we should be considering multiple identities, and yet I think psychology has forgotten that quite often. So he wrote, a man has as many social selves as there are individuals who recognize him and carry an image of him in their mind. To wound any one of these images is to wound him. He generally shows a different side of himself to each of these different groups. So I encourage you all in your own work going forward to please consider the fact that we have many selves, many experiences, even when we show up in our labs for studies, and to try and take advantage of that um, as best as you can in your data going forward. So with that, I would like to thank all of my collaborators, funders, my billions of undergrads who worked in my labs over the year, and all of you for listening today. So thanks so much, everyone. All right, Dr. Gaither, thank you so much for that talk. You covered, I don't even know how many studies. A lot. I lost I track. I warned, I warned you at the beginning. That was awesome. And we have a good solid 15 minutes for what I'm sure will be a lot of great questions and discussion from our audience. And I'm gonna, oh, nope, we already have. <laughs> raised. Is that Hoor? Yeah, my name is Hoor. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if um, like I, I, you talked about like how the happiness levels like increased and everything. Do you feel that students of color ended up experiencing like more microaggressions and racism from rooming with white people that they necessarily would not have picked themselves? 
or yeah, that's, a, that's a great question and that's also the other biggest pushback that the university got when they announced this policy change was being able to choose someone from your own racial or background or cultural background we get this question a lot from international students as well wanting to live with other international students on campus um, so we have a ton of stress data mental health data Right now, our preliminary results are not showing any increases from the year that they had this policy versus not. I'm not confident in selling that data yet. I wanna make sure just because my goal as a diversity scholar is not to just make sure that this is all fine and dandy for these white students, but that there are still tangible benefits for students of color. So the fact that we're seeing um, self-expansion is also increasing for students of color, just like we're seeing with white students, which I think is really exciting. They're feeling more included on campus um, because of this roommate change as well as some other findings we were just analyzing last week. Um, again, because their social networks are expanding, right? So there might be some other minor stressors, but I don't think, at least right now, they're any different <clears throat> than the other stressors uh, students of color face on predominantly white campuses in general. So, um, but stay tuned. That's a great question. Thank you. Brittany. Hello. Um, I just want to thank you so much. That was such a fantastic talk. And I, what I do is not within this realm so much. And I feel like I've just learned so much and I'm thinking about a lot of things. So this isn't a particularly well-formed question, <laughs> but um, sort of a general question about people who do research with humans, um, but not necessarily research that revolves around race and identity specifically, but all people have these multiple identities. And so um, we often collect a host of demographic information and maybe use them as covariates or ask like, is it different between gender um, or don't do anything with it at all or maybe aren't asking the right questions. And I'm just, I'm curious about your opinions on how to integrate or think about multiple identities in a research context sort of outside of that specific field. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I have, I'll try and give you a short response, um, I guess, to this loaded question in some ways, I think, in our field right now. Um, I think broadly, my first thing is I really want our field to just be transparent in reporting the different demographics about their samples. I'm not asking for everyone to have billions of dollars to recruit huge, massive samples. I think that's one way the open science and large power pushes have sort of impacted diversity work in some ways is we don't have enough time and resources to recruit a thousand black people for every single study, right? So you have this kind of unfair advantage. That said, we need to be honest about when we say this is how people are. If your people are 95% white and you've grouped these few non-white people together saying, oh, look, it's the same for non-white people. That's a big problem because we know there are tons of differences, not only within racial and ethnic groups, but between different minority groups. So I would love for journals to actually penalize people to a certain extent who just group all non-white people together um, because that's a really poor practice. Um, so first transparency and reporting just who your sample is and is not. And I think drawing out those limitations in your discussion section and why you think that data may or may not differ is a direction our journal should be highlighting a lot more. Um, and I think secondly, when you're designing a new study, really think about who you're gonna end up having and how generalizable those survey items are going to be. Um, and is there an aspect of one piece of intersectionality, right? No one's gonna tell you to go and study every single identity every person in your sample has, but really think critically about are there items in this scale or in this study experience that might actually shift data differently? Because sometimes when you get null effects, 
it's not because your manipulation is not working. It's just because you actually have literal noise in your data because there's other experiences that participants have brought to your lab that you just didn't account for. So really just getting people to think critically, is the study experience going to be the same for person A versus person B? Um, and that's a discussion point that we have with all my postdocs and grad students before any new study. So I hope that kind of helps. Cool. And then Lindsay, I think you had your hand up, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was wondering, given your findings regarding hypo descent, how do you think we balance the need to talk about intersectionality specifically in regards to white privilege and its implications without leading to individuals withdrawing from the conversation or kind of harboring that hypo descent that you talked about? Because obviously these conversations need to take place, but I think especially with older generations in my experience, there's this immediate withdrawal probably triggered by that hypo descent. Um, so I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a, another big question. So I'll try and be brief on that one too. Um, so I think hypodescent is one of those terms that psychology in the US loves. Again, um, I think again, it's problematic, at least based on this meta-analysis. It's really not a real universal finding. I think it is very re real for white people. Um, when you're trying to talk about race with white individuals that might not be as open to it, this sounds really bad, but talking about another identity first often can help. Um, so I find actually talking about gender is a lot easier as sort of a, an entry point. Um, I was actually asked during one of my job talks on the job market, I will not tell you all what school this was. Um, a person raised their hand and literally said, my question for you is, have you wasted your entire time in your short career studying something that's not real because race is not real? And if you've been on the job market, it is like the scariest time of your life when you're giving these talks and you have to be all nice and poised and polite. And I'm not that good at being polite all the time, um, but I, need, I needed a job. And I knew this person had two kids. Um, this person was a man. Uh, this person happened to have two daughters. And so what I said at that point was, well, you know, you're right. Race is socially constructed and it shouldn't be real, just like gender. And I know you have daughters. And so would you want your daughters to be walking home at three o'clock in the morning just as much as if you had sons? And he said, well, no. And I went, well, why not? Well, because, you know, women, they're, they're attacked for being a woman for how they look. And I said, well, just like how women are sometimes categorized in those ways, there are other groups in our society that also get categorized based on how they look and their treatment is also very different, right? So I find those types of approaches, you take a step back and get away from the thing that you know is a threatening, divergent uh, point of view, and you find something else that you can... Um, look for a common identity, right? That's the other big kind of intervention strategy is you find a common identity, a common source, something that's a little safer, quote unquote, and then you work your way into race because race is very, very divisive in addition to um, talking about politics. That's actually the only group in our roommate study, fun fact, we're finding their friend diversity is increasing gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, but there's no movement on political in-groups and out-groups. Like, you still stick with your Democrats or Republicans. We are not moving that around at all. So there are certain things I just think are harder to move than others. Does that kind of answer your question, Lindsay? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Other questions? Yeah. I have a question. Uh, kind of going back to you, uh, like a variation on Hoare's original question. If there's this, um, like diversity is good. Diversity is improving our skills in all of these ways. There are um, social and, and cognitive and all these benefits. 
And I think I'm, I'm putting this um, in conversation with this other visiting speaker whose name is escaping me, who was talking about the integration imperative that if we have these diverse college campuses, the expectations for particularly the white students is you're gonna integrate. Like, where is my diversity? This is what was expected, what I was expecting. And then put that up against the need for, um, or maybe just the existence of, we won't, don't need to say the need, um, for affinity groups and cultural and racial ethnic identity groups. And that can be Greek life, that can be the Black Student Alliance, like whatever it is. So how do we kind of think about the need for these affinity groups alongside the integration imperative and the benefits of diversity? Yeah, no, that's a, a big question. And um, something I talk about with Duke a lot right now and sort of assessing this roommate policy and the pros and the cons. Um, one thing for our roommate data that I can least speak to is um, for our white students, we actually, the behavioral findings I briefly mentioned I did in grad school, we ran that whole behavioral study at Duke as well and found that we are replicating the effects for white students. So when a white student who was randomly assigned comes into the lab to meet a black student, that interaction goes way better again. We are not finding those behavioral changes for students of color, right? Not to say that they hate the interaction, but for students of color, their interactions on a predominantly white campus interacting with a white person is not new to them, right? That's their everyday existence and their everyday experience. So I was pretty bummed at first to not find these behavioral changes for students of color, but then I sat and thought about it and thought, ah, them talking to a white student isn't new. This is their everyday. Like they have to put this face on, they have to code switch every day, right? This unfair advantages. And so I think ways I've talked about this data, at least on our campus with administration and with different student groups is everyone needs their safe places here and there, right? So this roommate policy may take away some of those safe spaces in some contexts, but everyone needs their safe spaces just to feel whole and feel who they are. And so we can have these affinity groups. Now you can't have a, a KKK student group or things like that, right? There are some caveats. Um, and those are things that I discuss with my class a lot is why don't we have a white student group on campus? Um, what, would that, what would that seem like? Um, why is there not a Nazi group on campus? Um, and so there are these, these divisions, right? But I think the more you can highlight the benefits that diversity has for all students across their backgrounds and for all their skill sets, right? And that's where I find talking to students, it ends up resonating with them the most. I show them that data of, look, when you have more cross-race interactions, they don't need to be your best friend. This is just sitting next to them in class or hanging out with them on the shuttle, right? These continued interactions is what's shifting their attitudes and what shifts their sense of belonging and increases graduation rates and job prospects. And you highlight those types of outcomes rather than some of these stressors. And it makes people more motivated to want to continue to find other types of cross-group experiences while still highlighting the need for those safe spaces. Because this is, I don't want anyone to leave this talk thinking, do not have affinity groups because we 100% need them. Um, because students all need a place where they feel like themselves and can be themselves in order to graduate. So I feel very strongly about that. Does that kind of answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And Jane. Hey, Sarah, welcome. And thank you so much for a great talk. My mind is just brimming with the reactions and ideas. So I really appreciate all you're doing. Um, uh, so as somebody who studies aging, cognitive aging, um, I can really, <laughs> it resonates the issue of heterogeneity within racial groups. Um, 
take MTurk, for example, their upper age limit is 55 plus. And so for me to get people on MTurk who are 55 plus, that could mean people who are 55 to 95. And so the heterogeneity in that group is huge. And so I constantly struggle with and try to educate people about that heterogeneity, including journal editors who, you know, as you said, you want to sort of force them to have a policy to, um, define and report on the numbers of multiracial and um, various race subgroups. But specifically, I have a question for you. It occurred to me as you were talking, so many of us use on our demographic background information sheets, the racial categories say on the US census, and then we have that category other. Well, I'm just wondering, what does it feel like to be an other in that situation? And to have that sort of stigma or, you know, otherness highlighted on that questionnaire. And so I'm just wondering, is there another option there? Should we say something like, instead of other, your racial identity? Or do you have yeah. advice for how we might change that item on our demographic questionnaire? Yeah, I mean, to not put this in nice academic language, um, it sucks when you are forced to uh, choose other on any type of form, right? This could apply to a person's gender identity, their race, sexual orientation, right? No one wants to be otherized. It's not a term. I don't think I've ever talked to anyone from an underrepresented group who likes the term other. Um, so phrases we try to use on our forms um, are things like another identity not listed here. Um, that way you're still giving that person the agency to actually claim an identity label that's for them. Because um, there could also be like, I've had some students tell me that they're actually a Honda Civic for some reason. I think they're trying to be funny, but that wouldn't fall into another gender identity, right? So I find another identity in any of those types of demographic um, categories tends to be a little more inclusive. Um, always allowing check all that apply is another good practice. And we are doing some new work right now with Brenda Strzok and my grad student again, looking at whether Hispanic um, as defined on the census is included as a racial category versus not, and whether you also include citizenship within these types of census forms, how does that shift belonging and voting behaviors? And we find that for our Latinx populations, when it's included as a race, more people are claiming it as their identity, more people feel comfortable actually claiming it as a part of their racial background rather than it being this separate entity. And that when that citizenship question is there, it actually greatly reduces their willingness to vote in the most recent election. Um, so we're working on writing up this data right now, but those demographic forms are very powerful cues, right, of inclusion and in what our government or what a university may actually see you as belonging to. So that would be some some thoughts of what we have. In fact, one um, trend in my field is that we include the demographic questionnaire at the end of our battery of questionnaires. So we're not triggering age and stereotype threat related to age on, say, a memory task. Yep. I mean, that's exactly what Claude Steele and others right, would, would argue, right, for why are SATs and GREs all asked for demographics at the end now, right? I know sometimes we need a screen at the beginning uh, with online samples. So um, it's more expensive to do two parts, but get creative on that if uh, you need certain populations. So Karen. Thank you, Sarah, for your talk. My question, I, I think relates somewhat to, to Jane's question. Um, I am working with some students to conduct a study on some racial disparities in COVID-19 impact and um, disparities in access to and satisfaction with resources and relational supports. And 
something that we're struggling with, um, and actually one of my collaborators, Ross, is here too, something that we've had a lot of discussions about is how best to categorize race on the basis of individuals' responses. And we just can't find a way um, that satisfies us that because we have like something like 24 different identities in a sample of about 520 participants. And um, I just wonder whether you have any recommendations for how to go about doing that so that we don't incorrectly or inaccurately uh, categorize people in ways that don't actually reflect their identity, but also where we can um, try to amplify the experiences of individuals within these groups. Yeah, I think what we've done so that you don't have 24 categories is obviously a data nightmare for all of us who need to unfortunately group people right in order to write up our projects is I put kind of qualifiers next to some of the more standard kind of census categories. So if you are from any of these countries or any of these regions right to sort of give people that ability to recognize that I'm not just putting you in the same group with everyone else, but this is the different countries right that this identity or this box may represent. Um, so that's helped in some ways. Um, I think the check all that apply is really important too. Um, and then again, having that some other racial or ethnic identity not listed um, and people can write that in. Um, also giving people a prefer not to answer option is another good way. I know it's annoying for missing data purposes, but some people really just actually don't claim a racial or an ethnic identity. Um, it's not just white people who feel that way. There are people of color who also are just so over race and ethnicity that they just don't want to think about it anymore. Um, so we always have a prefer not to answer option and people will always opt into that. Um, the only other ways I think we we get feedback from people all the time saying, you know, this category wasn't there. Um, the one change that we've made permanently is putting Middle Eastern separate from white because a lot of our Middle Eastern participants really hate being grouped with other white people because they do not think their experiences are the same, rightfully so. Um, so trying to get feedback from participants is another way too, just depending on who you might be recruiting. Um, so again, make sure that your forms are not threatening or exclusive in any way. Um, so hopefully that helps. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say you need all 24 or 50 racial yeah. or ethnic labels, um, but giving a little more descriptions can sort of help people feel a little more validated. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. I, I guess I mean that even though we, so we have, I think what you're suggesting in the questionnaire, but then we, we actually go to analyze the data to try to make claims about the experiences of members of one group versus another. Um, kind of theoretically in a paper, you can't necessarily discuss comparisons between even in eight groups. Um, and so I think that's just a challenge trying to figure out what, long, yeah, as long as you're clear with your definition of why you're grouping people together. And again, you have explicit statements for why that could be problematic, then you won't offend that one reviewer who might be a member of that group. Who's like, that's not how we are. Right. Um, so just being really honest about, I grouped, you know, all of these different Asian groups together, realizing this, or I also ran a small sub analysis for those who are Thai and South Asian who have different skin color. Who are clearly going to have different treatment experiences compared to people who are East Asian, right? So those pan-ethnic terms can get tricky when we group them all together. So I think as long as you're honest in who your sample is, adding in a sentence or so, even a little footnote of you tried to look at this statistically, right? You're probably not going to have the power to do anything about it anyway, but you at least looked, right? To sort of acknowledge the fact that you're not trying to group people together, 
but this is the diversity that we sort of have in the U.S. And I would say at least reporting that is a way better step than what most people are doing in our field right now. All right, that is all the time that we have um, with Dr. Sarah Gaither. Thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your time and your expertise. Um, on behalf of the psychology department and Jebson School of Leadership Studies, the University of Richmond, we were so glad to host you and learn from you. And if everyone can join me in giving one final round of applause to Dr. Gaither. Thank you everyone so much. And feel free to email me if any questions or if you wanna combine forces on collaboration efforts, that's the other way to win and making our samples more representative of who we all are. So uh, happy Wednesday. Thank you, Dr. Gaither. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you so much, everyone.